Well, good morning, and would you please open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. We are going to continue walking through our series this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, and then starting next week, we're going to hit the pause button on this series and then begin a new Easter series that we're calling Meals with Jesus, and that will go for four weeks. But the Sermon on the Mount, as many of you know, is chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. And last week, Pastor Joe finished chapter 5, and so you might think, wouldn't have that been a better place to hit the pause button before going into chapter 6, where things are going to shift a little bit? Um, and yet, it's a great question, but here's why I want to actually avoid doing that. Because uh, when we read the Bible or we hear teaching, we can, I think, sometimes be too controlled by the chapter divisions and the headings uh, that break up the scripture that we certainly are grateful for and make them more readable for us and accessible. But we rarely see how chapters uh, 5 in the Sermon on the Mount and chapter 6 are very directly related, right? Jesus did not take a break at that point. Um, and we tend to kind of isolate them from one another. So if you likened the Sermon on the Mount, these three chapters, to a movie trilogy, all right? Think of your favorite movie trilogy. Is it Lord of the Rings? Is it Iron Man? Um, the right answer here is Cars. Okay, that's the right answer here is Cars, the best trilogy out there. But uh, you, you, you could start with the second movie in Cars, and you could appreciate the storyline. You could benefit from uh, the kind of the themes and kind of pick up on what is happening. But you will not appreciate it as much if you did not watch Cars 1. And in the same way, Matthew 6 is a good chapter. If you just read it on its own, you would absolutely benefit from it. Um, but I think it is even better if we read it in context of Matthew 5. So if you missed any or all of the series up to this point in chapter 5, he, he, here's the, the flyover, the 30-second flyover. Jesus is teaching his disciples, disciples are those who put their faith in him, um, uh, about the kingdom of God. And he starts with the kind of character that kingdom people have in verses 3 through 12. And then he gives the mission for those in the kingdom in verses 13 to 16. And then he provides examples of spirit-empowered, righteous living in the kingdom in verses 17 to 48. So kingdom people with a kingdom mission through kingdom living. That's chapter 5. And now, starting chapter 6, Jesus is going to pivot a bit. And he's going to now begin giving warnings or cautions related to the Christian life. And it starts with a warning against hypocrisy. So here's the connection from movie 1 to movie 2. If you practice those things in chapter 5, by the power of the Spirit in you, it will lead to a growth in righteous living, right? We, we went through those six examples that Jesus provided of anger to lust to marriage to oaths to last week, the climax of loving your enemies. And I don't say this to feign some kind of humility, but if you're only going to listen to one sermon from chapter 5, listen to Pastor Joe's sermon from last week. Because as he said, it was the climax of everything in chapter 5. It was the most absurd example, if you will. Love your enemies, and aside from that, Joe brought it last week. He brought it. Whatever it was, he brought it. And yet, when you start to see that growth in righteous living, here's the thing that Jesus is going to affirm. Other people are going to notice that. 
Right? When you start living outside and the world begins to see righteous living, especially within the people of God, you're going to get affirmed. You're going to get encouraged. People will even praise you for the life that you lead. And therein lies a danger. We're receiving praise, being well thought of, being seen as a righteous, spiritually mature person has the potential to be toxically addictive. To believers. And this is how tricky and deceptive the human heart can be. This is how tricky our enemy can be, where people begin to crave the praise of others and now see that this righteous behavior actually receives this praise that I want to continue in order to keep getting the praise. So Jesus, perfect teacher, knowing this about righteousness, now warns us. And Church, this is kind of a scary passage this morning. It's going to sober us up a bit, and it might hurt a bit. I know it did while preparing it. And my hope is that it will be the good kind of hurt, the kind of hurt that leads us into total dependence upon Christ. So let's go. Chapter 6. We're going to start with just verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So we got to stop there. Number one, Jesus gives a clear warning. Number one, a clear warning. And this verse is the main point of all of chapter 6. This verse is what Jesus will now unpack for the rest of the chapter with various examples. And recall with me that anytime we see a warning in the Bible, it is a gift for us. We don't often think warnings in that way, but this is a warning that Jesus says this is a gift, this is a means of grace, because God in his infinite wisdom knows that all people, all of us, we need both promises and warnings to live the way we've been designed to live. And both can be motivations. And we're going to see both promises and warnings all throughout chapter 6. The warning is to not do good things with the wrong motivations. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. The implied promise is that if you do good things with the right motivations, then you will have a reward from your Father who is in heaven. So being motivated by rewards, it's not unchristian, it's not wrong, but we need to ensure that we're motivated by the right rewards. And if you just think about effective leadership, think about effective leaders you've had in your life or that you see and notice uh, qualities in good leaders, good leaders know, in part, when should I give a promise and when should I give a warning? Parents, teachers, coaches, mentors, bosses make decisions every single day. Does this situation right now, does this call for a warning or for a promise? Okay, so Rochelle and I are at that stage of life where every night at the dinner table can be a war zone if you're not careful. All right, trying to get kids to eat their vegetables feels like we are hostage negotiators, right? Where it's such a delicate balance. You got to be very careful of what you say because you don't want to just set things off and somebody dies. So you, you can go promise, hey, if you eat this, Your body will continue to grow healthy and strong, and you will get dessert. 
Or you can go the warning route. If you do not eat this, you won't grow healthy and strong, and you will not get a dessert. It's a very delicate balance. It takes grave wisdom. What's best here? A promise or a warning, but we are trying to get the same result. Well, Jesus is more than just an effective parent at the dinner table. Jesus is perfect, and he makes the right call every time. He always knows what's best in order to grow us into his own image by the power of his spirit within us. And part of his wisdom here in these warnings and promises is his now emphasis, clear emphasis on talking about God as Father. It's a shift that began at the end of chapter 5 and continues into chapter 6. Joe unpacked it last week when, when Jesus prayed, uh, said, uh, Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And now in chapter 6, Jesus will talk about the Father 12 times. You can kind of go down the chapter and just see how many times he says, Father, Father, Father. And that here he's trying to paint a picture for us of a healthy relationship between a heavenly father and his adopted children. One more thing we need to see before kind of going to these two examples that we're going to see this morning is this idea of being seen by others. It's come up before in chapter 5. Do you remember if you've been with us in this series? And at first glance, it might seem like Jesus just contradicted himself. So look in your Bible, if it's still open, back to chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And now in chapter 6, beware of practicing your righteousness or good works before other people. So which is it? Should we aim to let our light shine or should we not? Right? It kind of seems like it could be a contradiction. But the answer is no, not a contradiction. And it just takes a little bit more digging and it becomes clear as to why. Because keep reading chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Look, in order to be seen by them. There's the, there's the difference, right? Chapter 5, the motivation of righteous living is the glory of God. And here in chapter 6, Jesus is speaking of a motivation that is the praise of man. So chapter 5, he's talking about the glory of God is your motivation. Chapter 6, it's the praise of man. To be seen. To be noticed. To be praised for our righteousness. Church, this is scary for me. That selfless behavior on the outside can just be a subtle form of selfishness on the inside. And it is a, as clear an affirmation as anywhere in your Bible that we are utterly dependent upon God every step of the way. In that Jesus is not only the power through which we can obey, but he serves as the chief example. For Jesus himself said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So the foundational thing to remember in the kingdom of God is that our supreme desire is to glorify God in all things, even in, especially in, the good works that others are going to see as righteous. 
So let's keep going. There's two examples he's going to provide. First is going to be in verses 2 through 4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The first example is the danger behind giving. The danger behind giving. In these examples, Jesus is saying that righteousness is not merely the action itself, but the motivations behind those actions. And that good works are only good in the eyes of God in so much that they are done with the right motivation. And so in this example, Jesus is going to give you two wrong ways to give and then one right way. The first wrong way is actually implied. It's not explicitly said, but I think it's worth mentioning. The first wrong way to give, you ready, is to not give at all. Jesus says, when you give. He doesn't say if you're going to give. Implying that the true children of God who live in the kingdom are marked by generosity. God's children are givers. And there can be this twisted approach that knows that since Christians are supposed to hide behind the private nature of giving, that that gives you an excuse to not give at all. And no one will know because you're not supposed to share anyway. And so it's easy, let's be honest, it is easy to be a stingy Christian because we're not supposed to broadcast it, which we'll see in a bit, so we can just make it seem like we're just being private and just nobody knows that we're actually just not giving at all. And our finances and our time and our talents are not prioritized and oriented towards investing in the kingdom of God with a particular focus on providing for the, the needy, the, the least of these, as Andy prayed. And so the first wrong way to give is to not give at all. And it's, it's hypocritical to say that you are somebody who is for generosity and for charity and for investing in the kingdom of God without actually giving. I don't know why, but this reminded me of an episode of a certain sitcom that Rochelle and I used to love to watch, The King of Queens. Now, last week, Joe gave an illustration from WandaVision, and I'm talking about the king of queens. So if you had any question who the cool pastor is on staff, now you know. But there's an episode where Doug and Carrie had an accountant come to the house to help them do their taxes. And at one point, the accountant asks, okay, now do you have a list of charitable donations for the year? And Carrie says, well, we don't, we don't keep a list per se, but we definitely give to charity. We, we love charity. So let's just think for a second. The accountant says, all right, just name out where you gave, and I'll add it up. And they recount together at the dining room table. Uh, there was that few times we gave to the animal shelter that was outside the grocery store with the booth. There was the kid who came to the door raising uh, money for the rainforest fund. Yeah, count that. And they go through a few different things, and they're calling out numbers. And the accountant is adding on his calculator, and he presses enter, and he says, all right, that comes to a total of $35 for the year. And they were appalled because they thought themselves as being generous, charitable people, but they didn't actually give anything. The first wrong way is to not give at all. 
The second wrong way is to announce your giving in order to be recognized by others. Jesus says, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised, that they give so that they'll get praised. There's a couple, I think, ways, reasons why he talks about the trumpet. First is that there would at times be a literal trumpet blown when it was indicating time to come contribute to the temple treasury. And in the temple, there were 13 different chests throughout the courts where various offerings were collected. And the chests themselves had a trumpet-like shape, which meant this, that when you dropped your coins in, it would flow down the chest and make a lot of noise. So the more you gave, the more noise it made. So men would walk into the temple during the busiest time of day, unload their money into the chest, and it would cause a big commotion, and people would sit back and be like, did you hear that? Do you hear how much they are giving? How generous and faithful. Do you remember the story in Mark 11, Jesus during Holy Week says, after this time when the rich men came in and gave all their money, this poor widow walked up, she had two coins. Could you picture, could you hear it, the sound down the trumpet, just a little clink, 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 barely audible. People kind of look at her and be like, oh, whew, how pathetic. And she walks away, and it's here where Jesus calls his disciples. He says, guys, come here, come here. Did you see that woman? She just put in more than all the rest. Because generosity is not measured by the amount given, but it's measured by the amount of sacrifice of the giver. All right, I'm back to the King of Queens. That episode kept going. They were so convicted that they were not giving that they said, we need to go find somewhere to make a splash and let everybody know how generous we are. And so their friend's uh, local school library was doing a renovation and they were raising money and they said, this is our spot. Because the fundraiser advertised different levels, as fundraisers often do, different levels of givers that would be recognized on the wall of the renovated library. And the highest level was the patron level, the highest contributors. And then there was a level called friends, the lower level. And Doug and Carrie said, this is our chance. We're going to be patrons for the new library. And our names are going to be on the wall. So at the grand opening, they, they pay to be patrons. They show up so excited to take the tour, acting like they're interested in the library. They just want to get themselves to the wall. They look at the wall, and they made a mistake. They listed them with the friends, even though they donated enough to be patrons. And they were so frustrated that now they're not going to get the recognition that they actually gave this time. So, is recognition for giving bad? Of course not. But if that is the motivation to give, then it's bad. Jesus is saying when you give as part of kingdom citizens to sow into the kingdom because you care about being seen as a generous person more than you care about God and those you are actually helping, then the praise you get is your reward. You just got it. That's your reward and nothing more. And there'll be no reward from him. So those are the wrong ways. What's the right way to give? 
He says, when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is using hyperbole here to make a point, just like he did back in chapter 5 when he was talking about lust, that it's better to cut off your hand than to sin against the Lord and be thrown into hell. So now he uses hyperbole to kind of overstate the point that it's better that your left hand not even know how much your right hand is giving. And here's the point. He says, don't announce it to others, but listen, don't even announce it to yourself. And that's even harder. Remember how deceitful the heart can be. That it is possible to be so careful about being humble and quiet outwardly, but then be inwardly prideful about how outwardly humble you appear. This is hard, isn't it? Passages again like this just make it so clear. We just cannot do this in our own power. It's impossible. We might be able at best to control outside behavior, but to have the right motivations as well inwardly, it's only possible with a new nature. It's only possible with the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Jesus is saying rather, give, give generously, and then forget yourself. Don't keep an internal scorecard. Don't be so consumed with how you're ranking up. Give for the glory of God and the good of others, and then forget yourself. If you do this in secret and not be so anxious about what others think, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's the first example. Now let's go to the second example. We're just going to read verses 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, will reward you. Second example, we saw the danger behind giving. Now we see the danger behind praying. Did you know that there's a danger behind praying? And as you heard, it's a very parallel example to the first. And we will see this serve as a segue into Jesus' teaching about the Lord's Prayer. It's the most well-known and probably memorized part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, let alone probably the entire Bible. But it's helpful to see the Lord's Prayer, which is obviously usually isolated and spoken, but to see it in context as to why Jesus is sharing it. And that he is teaching his disciples to pray out of a desire to help them not be hypocrites when they pray. As an aside, I think this is the tragic irony of it all. And that the Lord's Prayer today... Isn't it more than often seen and recited as a good luck charm? Or a needless ritual in order to be seen and heard by others? Which is the very thing Jesus is warning against when he teaches it. So we're just going to cover verses 5 and 6, and then we will return back to this series in mid-April and pick it up at verse 7 and then go into the Lord's Prayer. But again, here, Jesus gives us two wrong ways 
and then a right way to pray. And it mirrors the first example. The first wrong way to pray, again, it's implied, is to not pray at all. Jesus says, when you pray, not if you happen to pray. Because he knows that God is a good father, and prayer is a gift for his people. That prayer is a gift, not a burden. It's an opportunity, not an obligation. And that man's most noblest activity, or most noble activity we can ever do, is to be on our knees in communion with our Father. And if this is where the convicting starts to come in, I know it came in for me this week. I can never say I'm a prayer warrior. Prayer is a strength of mine. It never really has been. It's something I need to fight for. It's a discipline. And yet I never regret it because I know that this is a gift that God has provided for me. So don't, don't allow your mind to go to a place of just conviction that I'm so terrible I never pray. Like, see this as a fresh opportunity out of God's word to join me in recommitting ourselves to prayer. Because just as a young child is at their greatest place of joy and comfort when they're in the presence of their parent, so too the child of God is at their most joyful, safe, and comfortable place when we are in the presence of God in prayer. That prayer is primarily about presence and time with the Father and not just about asking for things. Martin Lloyd-Jones says here that, quote, man is never greater. Man is never greater than when he is there in communion and contact with God. First wrong way is to not pray at all. The second wrong way is praying in order to be seen. Again, praying in order to be recognized. Praying in order to receive praise from others who are hearing you pray. The Pharisees would ensure that as many people as possible would be around when they began to pray out loud. Right? At the temple, there were daily prayers. But then he said not only the synagogue, but the street corners. Because the Pharisees would begin to pray on the way to the temple because that's where all the people were. They were on the streets outside the temple. And so as they start to pray, that it just kind of shows, wow, they are so devout. They can't even wait to start praying. Look, they're starting in the street. Listen to them. Listen to those prayers. This is the reason behind Jesus telling the parable in Luke 18 of the Pharisee who was on his way to the temple. Again, you see that again. On his way to the temple praying God, I thank you that I am not like these other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Easy for us to look at that and say, that's awful. A little bit harder to see ourselves in the role of the Pharisee. When we think it, even if we don't say it. And Jesus says, if you do that, that's your reward. Whatever praise you get, that's the reward you're going to get, and, and nothing more. And there can be a supreme desire to be known as a prayer warrior that supersedes the desire to be a prayer warrior. Do you know what I mean? 
Like, if I'm just seen that way, good enough for me. That can supersede our desire to actually be that kind of person. And, I mean, this just hit me this week. I think more than anywhere else in the Bible, this is a display, again, of just how dangerous and deceptive Satan is. Think about this with me, that he can distort the most intimate and holy of actions. Prayer. Prayer between God the Father and his children can be co-opted and twisted by sin, even prayer. And someone who seems to the rest of us to be devout in prayer can be caught up in habitual sin while they're actually praying. If that doesn't sober you, I'm not sure anything will in the Bible. And Jesus, it's a gift. Remember, it's a gift. He is warning us. Let those with ears to hear, hear, hear the word of the Lord. And it's important to note that Jesus is not condemning public prayer or corporate prayer. He's not saying that prayer should never be heard by others, because that is, among other things, a direct contradiction to Scripture that is filled with God's people praying together as a corporate body. In in fact, if you were to add up all the times in the book of Acts that you see somebody praying, the vast majority is corporate prayer. Fourteen times in the book of Acts alone writes about the people of God praying together. So he's not condemning public prayer, but he is condemning public prayer that is focused primarily on what others think about you while you're praying. So Andy Steen led us in the congregational prayer this morning. And one of the things that Andy or anybody up here has to pray during, uh, has to battle through while doing that prayer is the battle to not be consumed how you thought about him while he was praying. He's fighting to keep his focus on God, not on himself, not on how he sounds, not on how impressive his words are or his turns of phrases are. And if we're honest, man, this gets to be murky ground, doesn't it? It's hard to not think about that when you're praying. And even if somebody praises Andy for his prayer, that's not a bad thing. It's not wrong to say, hey, Andy, I was encouraged by your prayer this morning. I'm not saying that as an example. Like, Andy, I was encouraged by your prayer this morning. And that is good to say. I think it's good to share But now Andy has to do the work in his heart to ensure that the desire for that kind of praise does not become his primary motivation. And that's hard. And it's not going to be perfect. And we need to grow in that over time. I think especially when you pray publicly for the first time. Can you think about the time that you had to pray publicly for the first time? It's kind of terrifying. And some of you maybe haven't yet. And you're like, yeah, I don't want to. It's terrifying whether at a prayer meeting or in church or even in a small group or maybe even just leading your family at a meal. It's nerve-wracking. You get self-conscious. And that's okay to know that. This is something I need to grow in, but the point is the same. Focus on God. That when you pray, even corporately, it's you and him. We don't need to be worried about what others think. Which segues us into the final point. What is the right way to pray? Jesus says, go into your room Shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Now, most people have probably been taught this or think about that this means we should pray alone. 
and just find a quiet place where nobody sees you so you're not tempted to be seen or heard by others. And I certainly think there's application for personal prayer here, and, and Jesus modeled personal time of prayer where he would go off and into the desolate places early in the morning to pray. But it does not mean just that. Because again, like the first example, it's possibly to be inwardly prideful about how outwardly humble you are about your personal prayer life. And so this also applies to the times that we do pray publicly with others, which is vital in the life of the church. Our congregational prayer is a vital aspect of our liturgy and our worship gathering every Sunday. Our corporate prayer this past Wednesday night, a prayer of lament over one year since the coronavirus, is a vital aspect of our church life. But he says, even in those times, figuratively, go into your room and pray to the Father. What's that mean? Is that, again, let me use Andy. When he stands up and he begins to pray, he's praying to God. This is a one-to-one. And yes, he knows it's with and behalf of others who are listening. But in that moment, Andy went into his prayer closet. And his focus was on God. I am speaking to God one-to-one. This is why, kids included, why we encourage you to close your eyes in prayer. Not because it makes it more, uh, your prayer more effective, or that's just what we're supposed to do. But when your eyes are closed, it's easier to keep that mindset that my focus is on God and not on others. So when you close your eyes, you're going into your closet. You're going into the closet of your mind, and it's you and the Lord. And so this also applies to those who are listening. So all of you were listening to Andy while he prayed. And when you listen to public prayer, it's the same idea. That you close your eyes, and you go into your closet, and you're not thinking about Andy. You are praying to God and adopting his words to be your words. And it's still you praying to God, but now you are using the gift of Andy's words, and your focus is on him. So when we say amen when Andy ends praying, it's because we just prayed too. Amen. Let it be. The power in corporate prayer is when everyone's focus is on God. You know, Alistair Begg, he's a pastor with, um, I, I think he's a great pastor. He also has an Irish accent, which makes him seem smarter. Uh, but I, I think he's a good preacher even without the accent. Uh, but he, I came across something I sent it to Joe a few weeks ago. Of He gave advice for preparing sermons and delivering sermons. That his advice for people, and I think this applies also to praying publicly or even teaching or even leading your family at home. I think there's a lot of applications, but he says this is his process. Six steps. We'll have it on the screen. Number one, think yourself empty. Number two, read yourself full. Number three, write yourself clear. Number four, pray yourself hot. Number five, be yourself. And then number six, forget yourself. Anytime that you pray publicly or you are in the presence of somebody who's praying publicly, let this be a reminder. Eyes closed, go into the closet. Go into your closet. Have the right motivation. Well, that's the start of chapter six, the second movie in the Sermon on the Mount trilogy. And to sum it all up, righteous kingdom living 
is only righteous in that it is lived out with the right motivations. For the glory of God and not the praise of man. And I keep coming back to the thought that if this passage does not make it abundantly clear to us of how dependent we are on the grace of God every single day and on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, I don't know if anything will convince us because this is hard. But church, we can run this course. Not perfectly, but truly. Because the new nature that we've been given by our Father And our Father desires to reward us in secret because he has already saved us in full. And the Father's eternal rewards far outpace any momentary praise that we'll receive in this world. So we give to others, not for praise of man, but for the glory of God, because he first gave to us and made us adopted sons and daughters And we pray individually and corporately because every single time we pray, we declare the gospel that through the work of Jesus Christ, we have access to God. And being in his presence and having his ear, he is attentive to our meager prayers like a loving father. And in these daily routines, giving and praying to the glory of God, we play a part in God's kingdom-wide mission from Ridgewood to the ends of the earth to make disciples and change the world. And we play a part in the cosmic mission of God who is restoring and redeeming his creation one secret gift and one secret prayer at a time. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word even when it hurts. But Father, I pray that you would allow us to keep our eyes fully fixed on you And we pray, Lord, that daily faithfulness that is dependent upon you and the spirit within us, that we can trust you, that you will do with it whatever you see fit to do. But our eyes are on you. Our motivation is your glory. Father, help us in this and make much of your own name. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. finish our service with the Lord's Supper.